You're listening to the We Are Libertarians podcast network. Find all of our shows at wearelibertarians.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Episode 9, The Paradox. Welcome to The Paradox with your attending, Dr. Eric Larson. He is a practicing anesthesiologist and clinical assistant professor at Michigan State University College of Human Medicine. Listen in as he takes you behind the scenes of what practicing medicine in today's ever-changing world is like with another doctor. The Paradox is a fun and accidentally informative show for physicians, patients, or anyone who has ever found themselves in a waiting room. Welcome, I'm your host, Dr. Eric Larson, to The Paradox. Thank you so much for tuning in. I want to thank everyone who's been listening, especially those who've been sharing the show I'm not quite sure what happened last week, but the number of downloads in the episode has exploded the last week to the point where I'm up 50% just from the week previously. So I really appreciate you getting more people to come and listen to the show. I think it's a fun show. I've learned a ton. I'm hoping you have as well. And uh, we're going to learn a lot more today too. So again, continue to share the show. I can't tell you how much I appreciate it. And Super big thank you to the my patrons at patreon.com slash theparadox. Uh, there you can sign up to become a donor to my show to help support the show. Every dollar raised there goes to the promotion and production of the show. And also, if you are in the second tier or above, at some point you'll get some swag and there's some other bonuses. There's bonus features. You can hear the first pilot podcast. And I'm certainly open to other ideas for things to put for new content there for the Patreon uh, patrons. So today's show is one that I have to apologize a little bit because at the end of the show, I definitely got a little fired up. So (laughs) you'll have to forgive me for that. Uh, But you'll know why I got fired up at the end of the episode. Because I think even if you're not a physician, you'll find what we talk about really almost unbelievable (laughs) that there's such um, a disregard for by physicians towards other physicians for their for their craft. So today's episode is with Dr. Wes Fisher. He's an electrophysiologist who practices in Chicago, Illinois, and he sort of stumbled on this subject, maintenance certification, and the American Board of Internal Medicine, and along with their sister organization, the American Board of Internal Medicine Foundation, and sort of stumbled on what they've been up to. And what they've been up to is, again, a difficult story to believe with its level of cronyism and I've said criminal element. I'm not sure if that's the right term for it, but certainly you'll find out about the in the show to follow. On the show notes page, you'll find links to Dr. Fisher's website and his GoFundMe page, which we'll discuss during the episode. You'll also find links to his partner in crime, Mr. Charles Kroll, who is a forensic accountant and helped dig up all the stuff we'll talk about in the episode. I'd also like to remind you to visit the website at theparadox.com, and this specific episode will be theparadox.com slash 009, as we come perilously close to double-digit episodes. There you can also find a way to link to get on my email list to find out more information about the show, know when shows come out, and also other communications I may send to you later. I promise I will not inundate your mailbox, since so far I've sent out just emails alerting people to the show, so I don't think you need to worry about that at this point. So without further ado, my interview with Dr. Wes Fisher on the American Board of Internal Medicine and its crony activities. Enjoy. Well, thank you for joining. I'm here joined by Dr. Wes Fisher, who's an electrophysiologist at, in Chicago and triple board certified, if I'm correct, right? Internal medicine, cardiology, and electrophysiology? That's correct. All right. 
and I'm board certified through the American Board of Anesthesiology, and we're going to be talking about board certification, in fact. So for those of you who have not listened to episode one with Dr. Meg Edison, you should go back and listen to it, because we go through the basics of board certification and the maintenance of certification, which is the contention that we're going to discuss today. So first, I want to say I'm a big fan. I've been following you for a couple years now, probably five or six years, ever since the maintenance certification sort of came on the came on the into my consciousness as far as a problem. And so I've been <clears throat> you've been at the forefront I think of at, at least uh, disc, uh pointing out the shenanigans that go on in these these boards. And so basically just to set the table for people who might have missed the first episode. The when you finish your residency, you work through the American Board of Medical Specialties. They they have basic um I guess basic requirements for any sort of residency program. So that's where you get your specialty training. And then you pass some sort of, then each specialty has their own board and the requirements. Some are just a written exam. Some have written exam with an oral exam. Some have cases for like if you're a surgeon, you have to have a certain amount of cases and do case defenses. And then there are other requirements like how many, how long it takes and what sort of cases and things you have to do while you're in your um, residency program. And so if you meet all those criteria, then you are certified in whatever specialty that you're training in. Previously, oh, 1980s and before, when you were certified, you were certified for life. You There was no expiration of your certification, your knowledge. And then sometime in the 80s, this changed. And so there, they, it would be time limited. Or, and so you would have to, oftentimes, initially, it was just a, a simple test you'd have to take again. And so every 10 years, you'd take an exam somewhere and uh, or prove your competency through some other means. And over the last 10 years, we'll say, Things have really ramped up, especially starting with the or the primary care specialties, both medicine, um, family practice, pediatrics. Probably even pediatrics is the, at the forefront of all these, to be honest. Uh, and then all the other specialties have followed suit, in part because the American Board of Medical Specialties, the ABMS, has required um, all these all these specialties to have a maintenance certification program. And so our contention as physicians is that we're now continuously in this testing mode and we're doing a lot of things that are not helpful to our career, to our, for our patients, for our family or lives. It's very expensive. And again, it serves no greater purpose except to waste our time. But there's a bigger problem. And that's why I have Dr. Fisher with me today, because what had been sort of a continuous testing thing, there's actually maybe a more insidious sort of side of this, maybe, maybe more so with certain specialties than others. Would you say that's kind of sums things up pretty well? Well, I think, yes, I think there's um, the big issue that has happened is this uh, entity called their regulatory capture, which basically means that if you don't participate, you may not be able to work. You may not be able to collect insurance payments. You may not be able to get credentials in a hospital any longer. Right. And there's no proof that any of this maintenance of certification after initial certification does anything uh, to improve patient safety, patient outcomes, or quality of care. And in fact, um, I would argue that one of the interesting things about maintenance of certification, um, you know, if you have a drug, you always want to know what the side effects of that drug are when you're trying to weigh it uh, for giving it to a patient or not. And uh, what is interesting about maintenance of certification is the adverse effects of maintenance of certification have never been studied and, uh, and how they impact physicians um, when they uh, uh, go about their day-to-day -day business um, every day trying to take care of patients with uh, increasing regulatory burdens put on our backs um, and the time away from uh, patients. What's interesting to me is, that, uh, you know, in, in response to the huge physician backlash that uh, came in 2014 when the uh, many of the member boards of the American Board of Medical Specialties uh, implemented uh, practice improvement modules and surveys of their patients, uh, physicians, th that was really when things blew up 
uh, for the member boards of the American Board of Internal Medicine. People just had had enough. And they, they said, look, this is ridiculous. We're paying thousands and thousands of dollars to you guys. Um, and you're, you're wasting a tremendous amount of our time. We're already doing these quality measures in our hospitals. We're already uh, being tasked with um, undue burdens. And uh, it just didn't make any logical sense that they would add this on top of these highly stressful tests that if you didn't pass, you could lose your credentials and your ability to work in your hospital, your ability to manage patients, and your ability to uh, acquire insurance payments. Right. And and you see and you're seeing legislation nationwide and I think we've there are a number of states and I'm gonna try and have Dr. Edison on again to go through the state of the state of the state, so to speak, for the credentialing um, laws. But uh, that the three sort of components are that sometimes there's been some attempts to require you to maintain your licensure uh, or maintain your certification in order to maintain like your state license. Uh, but in some ways, as you said, regulatory from a regulatory capture standpoint, you really have to maintain your life, your certification anyway because you're in un- most hospitals have a requirement that you are ABMS certified, and if you lose your, even if you've done your certification, then you have to maintain it with all these, you know, crazy regulations. Otherwise, you won't able you're not able to practice. So you have to practice outside of a hospital setting, which is very difficult for most specialties. Furthermore. Uh, Lots of insurance companies, and most physicians are paid through a third-party payer system. And this does not include CMS, but like Blue Cross Blue Shield, a number of them will require the certification as well. And so, and so, and although this is a private organization, uh, it is not government regulated, but in but essentially, it it prevents you from practicing, right? And so, you have to you have to do the main certification, no matter how ridiculous it is. And I know with the American Board of Internal Medicine, there were and for most of these specialty boards, there is a grandfather status, right? So you can, if you are old enough, you've got your your certification initially before 1980 or whatever, that you can you can continue practicing without having to participate in the main certification, meaning you don't have to take tests every 10 years or now it's every five or two years. And you don't have to do the CMEs and all the different requirements. However, medicine changed that, right, in 2014. And that's what sort of caused the massive reaction because, right. because not only people lose the grandfather status, which I think people were not okay with, but it was, you know, whatever it kind of happened. The bad thing is it, all they wanted was money, right? It wasn't, there wasn't any sort of educational component to it. It's like, just send us a check for 200 bucks and now you're board certified again. And so it was, I mean, it kind of exposed the scam for it is, right? Right. And uh, it's important to note that the American Board of Colorectal Surgery, actually, if you paid them $1,000, you didn't even have to take the examination. Um, and we have that um, evidence uh, that we've accumulated uh, when we've uh, gone back and looked at this. So um, the whole thing was really a, a money-making scheme. And it started uh, back, actually, uh, the very first certification test for internal medicine uh, was in 1975. Okay. And that, and that examination was a voluntary examination. And uh, year after year, they had a declining number of people that would enroll for this special certification uh, when it was voluntary. And they realized uh, they started paying themselves large salaries. It used to be uh, the people on the board did a lot of this uh, voluntarily. Mm-hmm. Uh, but as people started to uh, grow their staff and um, needed to uh, pay themselves uh, hefty sums, uh, because they were doing the busy work of uh, making collating test scores as opposed to taking care of patients, um, they uh, began to give themselves pretty handsome salaries. And uh, many of them didn't even work in uh, at the location uh, of the ABIM. Uh, they actually lived in Oregon and uh, would would set up their office there. So, you know, it was very convenient to them. Uh, literally, uh, one of the ABIM former uh, presidents and CEOs, uh, he actually only took care of one patient while he was in that capacity, uh, which is one more than Richard Barron does today. So I guess that's a pretty good thing. It's but, infinitely more busy, right? Yeah. <laughs> right. So, you know, the getting back to the, the issue of the grandfather clause uh, for internal medicine, um, anybody boarded before 1990, uh, could claim themselves as a grandfather. And, and and the reason the ABIM doesn't like me very much is because my first board certification was in 1989. 
So I'm grandfathered. I, I bridged over this divide and it was, uh, I've seen the whole thing evolve from being, you know, lifetime certified in internal medicine. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, I think it's important for the listeners to understand that, you know, doctors are not adverse to continuing education. I think, in fact, uh, that's part of what being a doctor is. You're always educating yourself and your colleagues. We run into stuff we don't understand all the time. Absolutely. And uh, you have to be uh, very facile at learning. And uh, we do continuing medical education credits, just like lawyers have to do continuing legal education. Um, You know, and many other professions have to do this. We have to do that as well as maintenance of certification. Maintenance of certification was kind of thrown on the top. Um, and as you suggest, um, I would argue, and looking back at the earliest references of when this came to be, uh, in the Annals of Internal Medicine, um, when I was trying to find the earliest references where they introduced this to the medical community, in the actual articles themselves, they threatened doctors with, quote, uncertain circumstances, end quote, if they did not participate. And and um, that is kind of the, the uh, very interesting part of this uh, uh, program uh, that I you know, have found and, and confronted uh, head on, um, that uh, the strongman tactics by the American Board of Internal Medicine are very significant. And this is not truly a learning thing. They're, they have to be thugs in order to extract the money from their people. And it is only through these collaborations between them, the insurance companies, and the hospitals that they've been able to secure this uh, monopoly for uh, board certification for themselves. Right. And uh, so that is where uh, we're uh, pushing back against this issue, uh, is the monopolization of uh, this uh, educational process. And the interesting thing with this is that the entire Accreditation Council of Graduate Medical Education is complicit with maintenance of certification, Uh, in in large part because if you uh, want to be a uh, certified uh, training program, uh, your program directors must be ACGME or, or it must be ABMS board certified in their specialty. Oh, okay. Okay. And why is that? Well, it's because uh, Medicare has the little rule that if you want to uh, collect the GC modifier on top of Medicare patients, which adds additional money for trading programs, you have to be, yep, you got it, ABMS board certified training program. And you have to be accredited by the Accreditation Council of Graduate Medical Education. Well, it just so happens that the Accreditation Council of Graduate Medical Education is made up of the American Board of Medical Specialties, the American Hospital Association, the American Medical Association, the Association of Osteopathic, um, uh, whatever it is, the AOA, AOA, uh, you know, right. 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 So you've got all these. uh, and, And of course, then the Council on Medical Subspecialty Societies. And almost all of those are based out of Chicago, Illinois. Okay. So if you, um, you know, it's really pretty striking when you've realized the Joint Commission and, and the American Board of Medical Specialties and the AMA and the American Hospital Association are all, all based out of Chicago. Um, I, I find it fascinating. And I can literally walk between each one of them probably within, you know, a span of probably 30 minutes. So... Um, these guys are definitely colluding together. They love what they're doing. Uh, it makes it, tr- this is a $2 billion a year enterprise every year. Uh, physicians pay to the, to the boards, uh, approximately a total of $2 billion when, when you add up all this stuff. Right. Uh, yeah. So it's a, it's, it's a big, huge money-making operation. Yeah. And, and I think it's, Important to point out, I think you know when in the board certification process began in the that it was it wasn't a money making venture and and it probably it morphed into one sort of on accident right or it, I don't think it was probably intentional but as you said they got a little busier they started doing more things <clears throat> and then we noticed this even when we were at my anesthesia group when we were hiring an executive director when you when you go to to hire someone for an executive position like an executive director. Your your pay is based on the the total revenue that your your corporation brings in, and the same thing goes for these nonprofit. I'll 
in air quotes, nonprofit boards. So that if you have a nonprofit board that's bringing in, I don't know, how much does a ABIM bring in? hundred million a year or something or? Oh no, it's about 54, 54 million, somewhere around there. Four, mil- four million a year. No, 54. 54 million dollars. Okay. Right. So $54 million. So that means your executive is probably making what a million dollars a year and that's sort of that would be an expected pay for a ceo of an organization like that and it doesn't matter that that board probably doesn't do any more than a smaller specialty board because they really essentially do the same thing i mean they have more tests i suppose they but but they're that's why their pay which is especially exorbitant when you look at primary care physicians because of the average pediatrician for instance is not is making like two hundred thousand dollars a year and yet the president's making almost a million i think right or 1.2. Yeah, $1.2 million. I mean, and these are academics who don't take care of anybody. And and they're in, and so the incentive to continue this program is tremendous, right? I mean, obviously. And then now you have people who, people who are getting paid exorbitant amounts of money to maintain it. They're going to do everything they can to, pr- to protect their turf. And, and they, I think probably at some level, they probably believe it's justified and a good thing. But the amount of the, the destruction it causes for physicians or families. And, and I say that not loosely because if they get cancer and you miss your test, you've got, you have to repeat res. I mean, they're, they are on un, unyielding in sort of their, um, their mafia like insistence on completing the, the, the components on time. Cause I mean, there's right. many people, I mean, that's well documented, right, but, but they managed not to post their tax returns on time. So, well, right. And so this is a new, so we're recording this in the end of May. So uh, this will come out in a couple, a week and a half or so. So it's possible that by the time we, this comes out that the tax return, but. Well, they actually came out today. Oh, so they this came is, out today. So it did come the out. The 24th of May and uh, it, it was posted today. Okay. So, so they finally came out because I know you've right. been sort of hounding them. <laughs> right. Since right. They were, they're about a month and a half, month and a half late. Well, actually, they're they're about uh, to be honest, uh, not quite ten days late. Oh, because they got an extension. Um, they, I suppose. they got an extension from the IRS, right? So, but we've been watching for it and trying to because obviously this is an important part of some of our research that we've been doing on them. Um, the the big my my interest began uh, really in this whole thing after I had to recertify for the third time, and at the time I did that, it was 2013. And uh, at that time, we I, I was caught in a jeble, double jeopardy situation. If I did not pass uh, my general cardiology boards, I could not be a uh, cardiac electrophysiologist. So I had to take both boards uh, in order to maintain my certifications oh, in cardiac electrophysiology. Um, and it, that's incredibly stressful, time consuming. Um, and I don't, I'm studying stuff that I don't really do right. anymore. Yeah. Um, and so it was not applicable. And yet I had to do it. And if I didn't pass, uh, I could lose my ability to work. And my hospital would have uh, revoked my privileges until I did pass. So um, that's a very stressful situation. And um, I got a little bit upset because I would have to get up, you know, as a clinically busy guy who does a lot of procedures. I was up at 430 in the morning before I even would go into just to be able to study and to yeah. read this stuff. There's only so many hours in the day. Yeah. And, you know, we have very full schedules anyway. And then you put the added burden and stress of having to do all this stuff on top of it. And it's just it was it was really crazy. So uh, I would have to, you know, miss out on weekends with family. I would have to, you know, study and, and be behind. And, and uh, the, the materials and the sheer volume of what I had to do, it looked like the Encyclopedia Britannica, what I had to read and try to memorize. And you didn't know what they were going to ask you. Right. Uh, unless, of course, you went to one of the uh, subspecialty society board review courses, at which time the people who teach those uh, courses are the people who write the tests and they kind of give you some very key answers, which makes plenty of money for the specialty societies as well. So it's kind of a one big happy um, family and little community of people who are ha- more than happy to take your money right. and help kind of usher you through the system. But it, it's really come at a huge expense. Um, the cost of uh, board certification uh, or maintenance of certification for internists uh, general interest increased 244% from 2000 to 2014. And we really didn't get anything else from our money. Okay. I mean, we're buying the same thing. Uh, and then for specialists, it was 257%. 
so it, you're getting this huge growth and you're wondering, what am I getting it for it? And it's very expensive. And that does not even include time away from work and the time to your family and everything else. So uh, after doing this for the third time and kind of suffering through that, um, I, I managed to pass and uh, on both those boards. I really th- was considering at the time not doing it, um, but kind of glad I did because uh, my institution won't allow me to work if I don't do it. Um, so uh, I had the uh, misfortune or, or fortune of uh, needing a little bit of uh, knee surgery. And so I had a month off and I went back and looked at 10 years of tax forms for the American Board of Internal Medicine while I was sitting there um, high on Norco and, you know, trying to, <laughs> you know, recover after my thing. And, and uh, uh, I started writing about my experience and what I was finding. And um, as I was writing about the craziness of sitting for those boards and being frisked, at the, at the testing center and having to, you know, literally be uh, manhandled, uh, palm printed, uh, have a lady who would take every Kleenex out of your pocket and you could only have, uh, you know, uh, a Kleenex and an, and an eraser pad. And, you know, I mean, it was crazy. And, and of course, you take it in this test center that has a million other people of different types of professions taking their uh, certification examinations for whatever yeah. they were doing. And, uh, or whatever, right? Uh, exactly. Well, oh no, even better. Or, yeah. Who was next to me but a stenographer <laughs> who, was, who was banging on the keyboards as I'm trying to take this test. <laughs> and I had to put on these huge earmuff things. It was like, oh my God, this is psychotic. And then the first thing you get on the screen is if you tell anybody anything about this, we're videotaping you, we're watching you. Yeah. Uh, we have the ability to revoke your license, revoke your state. You know, if you spill any of the beans about anything on this test. And I thought, my God, this is unbelievable what these people can do to you. And, and all I'm doing is clicking this. I don't get a copy of that agreement at all. I'm just, it's some electronic signature that goes off into the ether. Yeah, right. And I'm like, well, wait a minute, this isn't a two-way street. This is like do it or die, yeah. you know? So so I, I'm sitting here going through this process and I'm getting madder and madder and madder. And so I started writing about that experience on my blog, which, you know, um, over the years, I started it in 2005 and remarkably it has over 3,000 or 3 million page views, you know, and oh, yeah. people, you know, it, it, you get to know other doctors and it's, it's uh, a really that, that part's kind of fun. But, um, yeah, so I, I started looking into this stuff and writing about it. And the next thing I know, I had this little canary flying through my window and said, you know, I've been looking at these guys too. And it happened to be a forensic accountant. Oh, and we got together and he started, and it turns out this forensic accountant was kind of between jobs and was reading about this stuff on the internet and stumbled across, uh, a post, uh, and that, mentioned the word extortion. And he said, really, this is interesting. So he pulled the tax forms too. And being a guy who knows how to read them, uh, he, he was uh, appalled. He said, I've never seen such uh, an amazing disarray uh, and, and so much fraud in my life. And, and so, I said, oh my God, we, we have to get together. Yeah. So we, we, we did. Uh, he happened to be here in Chicago at the time. And we went, I bought him lunch and we met at a little local uh, pub near me and uh, sat down and talked about what we were doing. And it turns out that he was so appalled with what had gone on. He had actually contacted uh, the Wall Street Journal oh my. and, and uh, the New York Times about what he had found. Um, and, uh, the wall street journal actually bit for a while. Uh, they had actually done, uh, a due diligence and, and it actually requested from the ABIM the last 10 years of financials so they could review them independently mm-hmm. and they never gave them to them. Cause it wasn't required by law, obviously. Yeah. No, it is it required by law. They just yeah. weren't going to give right, them to right, them. Right. And so uh, they said, but we'll make you a deal. We'll show you last year's financials and we'll meet you in New York and we'll sit down and we'll go over them and you can look at them all you want and ask any questions you want, but then we're going to take them back. (laughs) And uh, the Wall Street Journal reporter, who I'll leave unnamed for now, said, 
you've got to be kidding me. She goes, no, we're, we don't work that way. <laughs> we're, we're reporters, you know, and they're like, like, what are you doing? And uh, so um, they waited and they waited and they said, no, we want to see all 10. And they didn't come up with them. And so finally they uh, requested those financials from the um, uh, Pennsylvania state's attorney's office. Uh, and guess what? They didn't get anything from there either. And that happened to be the time when Kathleen Kane was a Pennsylvania, uh, attorney general and she was under indictment. <laughs> okay. And ultimately found guilty. And so they never quite heard from her. So they just went up the chain and finally they, they, after months of us waiting for something to happen with this story, um, they went to the governor's office in the state of Pennsylvania and they talked with the press secretary. And within one week, we had seven years of financials. Uh, however, uh, the forensic accountant I'd worked at, it also pulled those seven years of financials and six pages were mysteriously missing from those financials. So we knew we were onto something here. Something wasn't quite right. And um, it was only after he mentioned and posted online that six pages were missing from those financials that all of a sudden they coughed up the actual full financial report. And we've had time to go through all this stuff. And uh, what we found, probably the biggest and most egregious thing we found is the American Board of Internal Medicine Foundation. And the American Board of Internal Medicine Foundation um, online, when I was doing all my investigation, was supposedly created in 1999 in the, in the state of Iowa, domiciled in the state of Iowa, according to the tax forms. And um, as we were looking through this, it, uh, we went to the state of Iowa to pull their uh, registration. And lo and behold, it wasn't there. So can I stop and you for a second? Sure. So to, to be to be clear, the American Board of Internal Medicine is different than the American Board of than the American Board of Inter the Foundation, correct? I mean, technically, there there one. I assume one is sort of a philanthropic organization. Well, let's let's. Well, it actually is uh, the American Board of Internal Medicine is a uh, foundation is a supporting organization of the American Board of Internal Medicine, which is a 5013C nonprofit. Okay. okay. And um, it has a specific tax designation. I think it's a 40, oh God, I can't remember. Uh, it's got a, a certain designation as uh, in the tax law, but it's a supporting organization for uh, the American Board of Internal Medicine. And, um, when you read the web page, it said that this organization was being created to define uh, medical professionalism. That's what their purpose was for the foundation. That should be cheap. Uh, which is, well, <laughs> one would think that, uh, you know, defining medical professionalism is like defining pornography. You know it when you see it. I suppose. Okay. And, and uh, there isn't really a, an easy way to define medical professionalism, but they were going to make sure that they did. And what they didn't tell you is that um, the American Board of Internal Med Medicine Foundation, which was supposed to be uh, created in 1999 and domiciled in Iowa, had actually been created 10 years earlier in 1989 in the state of Pennsylvania. Ooh. Yeah. And we found uh, the registration for that in 1989. So then the hunt was on for the tax forms. And we kept looking back and back and back. So I was able to pull all the way back to 1997. And from 1997, its very initial tax form, the American Board of Internal Medicine. Now, that's, by the way, that's what, two years before it was supposedly created right, online. So it shouldn't have tax returns, obviously, if it doesn't exist. Correct, but it, lo and behold, it did. Okay. And, it, and, it had, and it had $58 million in it. <laughs> So we're trying to figure out, okay, where did that $58 million come from? Yeah. And so we looked and looked and we were able to f piece together that they had been secretly transferring in piecemeal fashion year after year between uh, 1.6 and $7 million a year to fund the ABIM foundation from our testing fees. And um, when, and, we, and all of this is actually recorded on, on many of the tax forms. And uh, so I started writing about yeah. this. This got to be really, you know, and so 
uh, and the outrage began. And then in the, the last transfer was in 2007. And in December of 2007, the ABIM was so flush with cash and having such a great time that they decided that they would buy themselves a $2.3 million personal two-bedroom condominium complete with a chauffeur-driven Mercedes S-Class town car. <laughs> and, and we were able to find the address of that. And it, it was by far and away the, the nicest uh, uh, renovated home uh, in the center of uh, Pennsyl- Pennsylvania, Philadelphia, right across from the Liberty Park, where the Liberty Bell is. I mean, it's ridiculous. And, and way up on the 11th floor, they had a corner unit uh, overlooking the city. Um, and all of that's being done on our nonprofit nickel. So um, when you start doing these kinds of things, you start wondering, okay, well, who was staying in the condo? Absolutely. Right. And so I wrote Rich Barron a letter and I said, Dr. Barron, dear Dr. Barron, um, what the hell are you guys doing with the condominium and who's staying there? And he promised me, oh, no, 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 no. You, you got to understand. Well, it's much cheaper to have a condominium. To, we put up all our IT people in that, in that uh, condo that are coming over from India and we've got them working on our computer systems and all that kind of stuff. And what he really wasn't really, and I said, well, what about Dr. Cassell? Did she live in that condominium? Uh, we'd like to know. And uh, he assured me, oh, no, 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 no. She, she wouldn't possibly live in the condominium. You know, she lived someplace else. Okay. So, um, which seems kind of silly that you're going to rent a two-bedroom condo to a bunch of Indian programmers, uh, especially when there's a lot cheaper hotels in Philadelphia. Yeah. The whole point of getting Indian right. programmers is that they're inexpensive. <laughs> Correct. <laughs> Correct. Three dog condo is not a good way of doing it. Exactly. So you know, right away we were. Uh, it, it, I was getting a lot of soft shoe, and then I asked him about the domicile date and the and the um, and the location of domicile, uh, to which uh, Rich Barron really uh, ignored. And and then uh, once he ignored that, I said, "Okay, we're going to keep looking, and we're going to follow the money." And uh, over the last five years, I've been following the money with the American Board of Internal Medicine, the American Board of Medical Specialties, and pretty much all of the stuff. And I've continued my relationship with uh, Mr. Charles P. Kroll, K-R-O-L-L, who is the forensic accountant I've been working with. Uh, And he has uncovered uh, a lot of the money and and really done a phenomenal job at trying to help us understand all these tax forms and uh, the way our money's being used. And it's not pretty. Um, as part of all this, uh, I was asked to be an expert witness for a young man in Puerto Rico who had been caught in a sting operation in 2009 by the American Board of Internal Medicine, who actually spied on a board review course. Um, they, they actually were concerned that, that there was other people who were doing board review courses, you know, outside their purview and, uh, they wanted to know how they were teaching to it and they were convinced they were stealing questions from people. And really what they were doing is asking all the people who took a test, Hey, let us know what was on the test and, you know, we'll teach the test. Right, right. Right now, most of us would say, oh, they're cheating and all that kind of stuff. But unless you have the actual test in your hand, you know, you don't know the detractors and all that kind of stuff. And you may know the content, but you don't really know it. And so actually that becomes free speech, right? Free speech begins to collide with copyright rules. And general medical knowledge, uh, uh, despite what the ABIM would like us to believe, is not copyrightable. If you can find the stuff in a textbook yeah, right. it's and, and you, you didn't write it, hello, it's not yours to copyright. So it's very hard um, for the ABIM to uh, really restrict uh, free speech uh, in this regard, but they certainly try and they make you sign forms that tell you when you sign up for mock that this stuff is ours. And if you leak it to anybody, we can take away your license and do all this. Again, strong yeah, right. tactics, right? all the same. So, um, you know, as I started looking into this, I, uh, I was asked to be an expert witness for this young man. And as part of that, uh, this young man happened to uh, be looking at, at test security books in, board, in uh, borders. 
And he recognized a name, a guy by the name of uh, Manus. And he said, wait a minute. I think there's a Manus. There's a guy by the name of Ben Manus uh, that works at the ABIM. And because he had kind of, uh, you know, had experiences with this guy because he was the director of test security. Mm-hmm. And uh, so he started Googling Ben Manus and nothing really came up. Nothing really big. But the guy had an initial in front of his name. It was an A, A Ben Manus, and he went by Ben. And if you Google that, you didn't, you don't really find much. But then he realized, wait a minute, the guy who wrote that book, his name was Ariel Benjamin Manus. Oh. And then he Googled Ariel Benjamin Manus, and boom, all of a sudden things started popping up. And it turns out that Ariel Benjamin Manus was a convicted felon and a dirty DC cop. And um, I uh, was instrumental at outing uh, Mr. Manus on my blog. Uh, After I did the background checks on what he did, he had actually um, tried to target a journalist for writing about dirty DC cops by uh, asking all his colleagues on a Yahoo Bolton board to uh, go after this journalist and ticket his car. Because he went into the the police database and got his uh, car uh, registration and uh, home address and told his buddies to go ticket this guy. And the poor journalist, you know, gets hit with all these tickets and then calls the police department and says, hey, what the heck's going on? They do an internal investigation and they found that Mr. Manis had been uh, targeting this journalist and fired him from the D.C. police force. Um, and Mr. Manis, of course, out of work, went to, um, he went ahead and, and uh, you know, needed to make a living. So he went to the TSA and uh, worked for the railroad division of the TSA as a security officer for them. And um, makes you feel safe, doesn't it, when you're flying? Well, yeah. it sounds like the TSA was pretty much running those testing centers. So before you yeah. go any further, I guess just to kind of try and sum this up a little bit before. Yeah, before we get too we long. Have- Right. I mean, it just, it gets crazy, uh, you know, where this goes. And you're like, you have basically criminal operation, right? I mean, (laughs) we could, you don't have to say that. I I can certainly say it. I'm not part of the APAM. I'm part of the ABA, the Board of Anesthesiology, which, uh, so you have an organization that is ostensibly there to to test and, and improve clinical knowledge of physicians. It takes money from physicians, basically required to. It continues to increase the requirements, and the um, and so they have to pay more and more into this into the system at more frequent rate. And now we find that the money that's going is not going to pay for maintenance of the program or to pay for people to write test questions and things like that, which is always you know they say well it's so expensive because we have to have you know all these professors writing questions we can't they won't do it for free right um, and you know we have to pay for the paper or the test or whatever you know all those sort of expenses that go like you know and so now you have an organization that was making so much money beyond what they required in expenses that instead of charging less which would have been a, a rational sort of a rational sort of response they instead take the money and think well we need a rainy day fund and then it gets bigger and bigger and so they start basically hiding it right with this foundation um and uh, which has this vague mission that doesn't really wouldn't certainly cost that much money to actually achieve no no but you've got to remember uh the foundation uh, did create the choosing wisely campaign (laughs) (laughs) i'm not kidding okay they were the ones who said let's do choosing wisely i'm like yeah you're choosing your investments wisely Right. on our backs uh you know it was just crazy so they were just yeah, blowing and, through and money so, and and yeah. and you're and not only that but you have a time when when there's clearly an outrage in the country for not having enough physicians and you know this is an absolutely a, one of the reasons not only do you have burnout and people just giving up on the profession they they may retire three years earlier because why do you go through ten, this painful process expensive like you said you're taking all these tests and you're missing all this time for families when you're like ah Two years, forget it. I'm done at 63 or whatever. And so you're losing people who are the prime, their career, or certainly they can easily contribute more to the medical profession. Maybe they just want to slow down, but now you don't even have that option because if you can't even slow down, because if you do, you're basically going to have to commit full time to this testing program. And and so and so now you have this organization and run by this Richard Richard Barron that is raking in millions of dollars. 
hiding it, buying real estate, ostensibly to have people from India come and stay, which well, clearly not, and, there's no way that's true, right? That they need sending, a class. And sending six and a half million dollars to the Cayman Islands for their right. retirement fund. Okay, and sending to the yeah. Cayman Islands, I imagine, I, in fact, I know this, but they, they're also flying first class everywhere they want, including their spouses. I mean, these guys are living high in the hog on the backs of physicians. And if people want to know why physicians are so mad, it's because it's not only that we're doing this testing, it's because this is what's happening with the money that we're sending in. Right. Right. It's, right. Now, it's, I don't, to my knowledge, it's not every board that does this. And the medicine is maybe just the worst. Maybe that's the one we've looked at. I don't well, know. Understand that the American Board of Internal Medicine is the largest member board of the ABIM, sure. uh, ABMS and represents one quarter of all U.S. physicians. Right. So that's a big number, number one. Right. And number two, uh, realize that. Um, uh, the whole process here is is now we're uncovering that it's not so much about our education, but it's about our data. And what we've now learned is that uh, the American Board of Internal Medicine and the American Board of Medical Specialties actually sells your data um, for a price. It makes uh, Cambridge Analytica and Facebook look like kind of chump change, but what happens, realize healthcare is a $20 trillion a year operation in the United States. And and uh, these um, organizations called group purchase organizations, yes. uh, okay, are actually uh, using our data for their database from ABIM. And they get our social security numbers and all our identifying information from the American Board of Internal Medicine. The American Board of Medical Specialties has a subsidiary that is a for-profit subsidiary called the American Board of Medical Specialties Solutions, LLC. It is based in Atlanta, Georgia. And it uh, gets registrations from insurance companies and pharmaceutical companies, and it sells your certification status in real time, uh, updated daily to whomever wants it. Um, that's not ever been disclosed in the New England Journal of Medicine, despite me writing the New England Journal of Medicine and JAMA, uh, that Lois Nora, who was at the time president and CEO of the American Board of Medical Specialties, never disclosed that information in her disclosures. Their excuse, they, they said, well, since we have that on our Form 990s, we disclose it, and we don't need to tell medical journals about that piece, to which I asked the New England Journal of Medicine to explain, uh, you know, their policy. Uh, and I got very politely written back saying, uh, we care to not comment on that at this time. So I, I think we have to understand this, it's the data that's the big money, and uh, what's happening is uh, when we sign up, uh, the American Board of Internal Medicine has an ethnographic researcher. You're actually, they're doing research on you without consent. And they're also doing, um, uh, they're, they're also uh, sending uh, this information. Uh, you become a business associate of the ABMS and ABIM, when you sign up for maintenance of certification, it's called a HIPAA business associate addendum that you have to agree to. Uh, it's kind of like, you know, the fine print that when you sign up for an Apple right. app right. or something like no that. One no one could read them. And I exactly. If you'd actually read all those disclosures, when you approach them, it's like, it oh takes three months of your life. <laughs> so no one, so no one could actually, no one can look at the Right. You know, so that's, that's where whatever. this that's where all this is going. Yeah. And um, so what uh, what we're doing is actually organizing. Uh, we're going to um, work on filing two claims against the American Board of Internal Medicine, uh, the American Board of Medical Specialties, and um, uh, basically for fraud and racketeering. So who's we? And uh, it's a new organization that we've created, uh, myself and uh, a pediatrician in uh, Pennsylvania by the name of Marion Mass. We got together. Was, she was on episode five. Well, there you go. <laughs> yeah. And we, we got together and said, you know, we need to have somebody who's going to represent working physicians as opposed to these bureaucratic knuckleheads at the American Medical Association who've gotten so involved in politics and, and uh, with conflicts of interest everywhere that 
that we need to have guys who represent real working doctors. Right. And so um, we got together and had a few like-minded souls. So we have a, a board of about six of us. So we meet weekly. Uh, we've been creating this since uh, about February of 2017. Uh, we have kind of a political arm. Uh, Marion kind of heads up the stuff in, in Washington, D.C., and I'm starting with the maintenance of certification thing. That's pretty much a full-time job for me. Uh, but we're um, collecting uh, funds now to create uh, basically two. Uh, we, we want to end mock. We don't want it just to be modified. We don't want to have another continuous certification gauntlet and pay, you know, uh, funding uh, mechanism. So we will work. Uh, we are working right now at putting together two claims against uh, the ABIM and their uh, co-conspirators for fraud and racketeering. And then uh, if the claims look good, uh, we will work. uh, We have a a way that we're going to fund this where doctors won't be tapped with having to pay a lot of money. Um, The law firm that we have actually um, contracted and retained a law firm who is very experienced at this kind of work. Um, And uh, they uh, have actually been helping us figure out how we can actually bring this uh, Mm -hmm. to, you know, uh, court basically. So uh, the law firm's been very helpful, um, and I, I don't usually say that about lawyers, but in this case, they've they've been very helpful at, at understanding it, and they get what's going on here. Yeah. Well, lawyers so, are one or the other. So yeah, it, what, and what's the name of the organization? That and so we've we created the organization called Practicing Physicians of America, uh, and there's a GoFundMe page, uh, GoFundMe.com uh, slash Practicing Dash physicians dash of dash America where that, that'll be in the show notes. Page yeah, <laughs> exactly. But you know, it's, it's easy to, to at least remember. And, um, but it, um, it, it's up now and we're raising $150,000 to write the two complaints. And then we'll, uh, see, uh, once those are generated, part of that money is going to be used for two experts to weigh in on, uh, antitrust issues, uh, and economic issues uh, that that are needed to actually formulate the complaint, so that when you when you file something in court, it better stand up, otherwise it'll get thrown out by the judge. So there has right. to be some background work that's done, uh, and that's kind of what we're working on creating at the present time. Uh, the law firm is working at a capped rate. Uh, they're doing all this work uh, for a max uh, of the. Uh, funds that we're raising. And uh, that way, as long as we hit that number, we'll be able to pay the, the legal fees and we're well on our way. So we're, we're actually quite happy in one week we're up to almost $40,000. That's great. And yeah. so, uh, you know, it's, it's easy to talk to physicians. I mean, I go, when I walk around the hospital, and I talk to people at main certification. I, it's at least 95% of physicians are, are not supportive of main certification probably 70% of those people are like absolutely visibly angry about the process. Mm-hmm. And then if you tell the story about what's going on at the internal medicine, I mean, yeah, it's I, crazy. You know, flames coming out of people's ears. So if obviously this has to take more, it just can't be physicians doing this. Right. And so, and also I'm concerned from a legal standpoint, you know, you're looking at an organization that's got fifty million dollars in offshore account or whatever, right? I mean, that's a you can buy a lot of lawyers and you can buy a lot of stalling tactics. And you know, if you're the mafia, you've got every reason to to keep this to keep things at bay. I mean, your entire their entire existence is at risk. They they will they'd be willing to spend every dime that you of course have to send to them <laughs> to right. stop you. So is this gonna be like a class action suit where everybody uh, is gets awards out of this because they've been sort of you know. Right, robbed yeah. over throughout Maligned the years. By this, yeah. Well, I think um, right now it's a it's very possible that this will be a class uh, okay. suit. Okay, does that have to? That's uh, the only way I can imagine being big enough that it make that it could well, stop. Actually, uh, the money with ABIM is it's not in the fraud and racketeering. It's not there isn't money there. Where the money is is antitrust because. Oh, sure. uh, yeah, that's really for the lawyers. That's where the money is, and the money comes from the big corporations that are colluding with with these institutions uh, 
um, to monopolize uh, the market, right? So you've got uh, Blue Cross Blue Shield. We have very good ex- uh, exposure of, of what they've done. Uh, we got Premier Incorporated, the group purchase organization. We've got uh, uh, Walters Kluwer, okay, the guys who are the largest publisher. Uh, Reed Elsevier, uh, two big medical publishers, all of which stand to make a lot of money. Pearson View, the testing company. Uh, I mean, you, you can just go on and on sure. and on. I mean, everybody's making bank on this deal. So um, I think that we have to understand that, yeah, it's a big deal. This is a lot to wrap your head around. Uh, the good news is the people we're working with, this is what they do. Um, and uh, right now we have four full-time attorneys working on the, the complaints. So it, 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 these are not rookies. These are guys who yeah. are going out and, you know, really want to make it stand up because they, they will win if, if we win. Well, and I think it's important to point out here too that what the scenario you ta- you painted and the story you're telling, I mean, this is this is not some harebrained conspiracy, some deep state sort of thing going on. I mean, it's 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 very understandable how it all got to this point. You can see how it escalates, and it's not it's not a, it it's a very believable is maybe the wrong word for it, but I mean, it's it's not it's not a really hard thing to piece together, right? I mean, I think you right. just can follow the steps and. You see people who benefit financially from this and then uh, in the testing centers and, you know, whether it's crony capitals or however you want to term it. But clearly, I mean, that there's very, there's very little question behind that this is going on and that a lot of people are benefit benefiting from the from the, the, the way the system works and that there's no reason, uh, there's nothing that's impeding their continuation and, and further ratcheting of the, the testing and the data collection, all this sort of thing. Because they have, they have every incentive to get more, there's no disincentive for them to, to stop, right? right. There, there's no and there's no competition. There's no competition, right? And so this is, and and there's the National Board of Physicians and Surgeons, which I we refer, referenced in episode one. We were talking about main certification. That's an alternative certification board where you just need to basically be a physician in good standing, do some basic CMEs that are specific to whatever you think are important, instead of doing this kind of ridiculous testing that have nothing to do with your specialty. Like- like the example I'll give people is imagine if you're a veterinarian and you work on farms and then you, every 10 years you have to go and you have to study how to take care of gerbils and zebras. It is in no way important to you. You're wasting time in what you could be learning about new techniques for say calving cattle or whatever. Instead, you're wasting time doing stuff that's totally unrelated. And of course, no right. other specialty continues these certification exams. I mean, you don't see attorneys taking the barber exam every no. 10 years. You don't see accountants no. taking it again. Almost no. nobody does this. <laughs> no, no, let, let's be clear. Care. No one else does this. Yeah. Okay. And yeah, okay. Um, I think, I, I mean, nobody does. I mean, and outside of, we, I'd say other medical perspective of uh, like. No, I think the word you want to use is no other profession does no this. Profession. Yes. There you go. That's right. probably the best. And the best. even pilots don't do this. Okay. They go back and they'll take flight tests from time to time right. uh, to make sure they can fly, uh, you know, and operate a mach- machine that, you know, is carrying a lot of precious cargo. But, uh, they don't go back and recertify and re- regain their pilot's license. This is this is a, akin to having to go back and take your calculus examination uh, when uh, just to keep your high school degree so that you can still work at your job. Right. I mean, you know, so yeah. that's that's what this is akin to. Right. I mean, imagine if you were you graduated. You, I mean, I have my bachelor's in science engineering, nuclear engineering. I can't imagine if I had to take a certification every 10 years because, right. you know, on everything, maybe I specialize in CAT scanners or something. I don't have, I'm not running a nuclear power plant. Why do I have to, you know, learn, relearn the entire, it doesn't make any sense, right? right. You can imagine any degree you might get in college. And if you had to know, relearn everything every 10 years, it it's be lunacy because it's not what you're doing. Correct. So a lot of my listeners, I'd say, I, I'm going to guess a majority, although I've not done a demographic test, but many of them are not physicians. And so, I mean, I've tried to make the case for why they should care because this affects their care and affects their family members. So how do they get, how do, for one thing, what would you be your pitch to have them get involved and fund this campaign? And secondly, what else can they do as, some, as a layperson who's not actually a physician? And then thirdly, if you're a physician outside of funding this campaign, what can you do if like, you know, I'm an anesthesiologist, I've got urologists listen, all sorts of other specialties. What should they do? besides just being part of this organization? 
Well, I don't. We don't even asking people to be part of the organization. We just want well, funding. To, it. Uh, yeah, I think if we want to fund it, I think uh, if anybody wants to go to the Dr. West blog, it's just Dr. West W E S uh, blog B L O G. Google that um, and. Uh, I've been writing about this for the last five years, um, but the the last post uh, gives a link to the GoFundMe page. Uh, you can you can uh, definitely jump on there. Um, I think for I think your point is a good one. You know what? How? Why does this affect patients? And I think uh, patients want to know uh, number two things. They want to make sure their doctor's competent. And I think uh, again. Uh, to be where they are now uh, and to go through initial board certification should be enough. We've always had to do continuing medical education. So your doctor is going to be fine if, if they are, you know, have their initial board certification. The issue here that we're complaining about is this maintenance or continuous certification that's the problem. Right. And what's the reason that's a problem is because doctors are burning out at record numbers. Uh, physicians are, have one of the highest suicide rates. Um, and if we don't start taking care of our patients uh, or our doctors, uh, patients won't have a physician to see. Um, and I think that um, increasingly we're finding, uh, we did a national survey uh, that we just got done. And it's right now, I can't divulge too many of the data because it's actually being reviewed, uh, peer reviewed. So, uh, but I can tell you that um, we had, 394 doctors who felt they were harmed by mock respond to that survey. Wow. And, and the number, it, it's not an inconstant. It was actually 8% of the doctors who underwent maintenance of certification felt they had been harmed by the process. And that could be anything from had to max out their credit card to lost their job, had to move out of state uh, to get another job. Uh, it's dramatic. Yeah. So, uh, this is where we are today, and an educational process should not be this way. No. Uh, you know, we should be taking care of our doctors, making sure that they want to stay, hang in there. We've got more people who are sicker than ever um, uh, coming into doctors' offices, and we have fewer and fewer doctors around. And we can thank uh, this process uh, for the loss of a significant number of physicians uh, because they don't want to do this anymore. Yeah. Um, and then when you find all the corruption behind it, uh, that that's even a, a bigger deal and should infuriate people because here's the thing. Where all that data is going to is to people who want to keep prices high in medicine. The group purchase organizations are that way, not to cut prices, but to actually monopolize the market and to keep prices high. So uh, there's, I would encourage people to also learn about that group purchase organizations as well, because they they dovetail very uh, nicely with this maintenance of certification story. Yeah. And, and I would recommend that if you've not listened to episode five, my audience out there, that you absolutely listen to that where I, where I interview with Dr. Mary Massey, Dr. Fisher uh, spoke about earlier, where we really d explain why we have these drug shortages, in which I personally as an anesthesiologist deal with every day. In fact, even today we're dealing with how we're running out of local anesthetics. And so I, it's total insanity. Um, and then we have this maintenance certification issue as well. And in the last episode I just did, um, we were discussing physician uh, depression, suicide, um, and malpractice stuff, but also the fact that the suicide rate of physicians is twice the general population. And we're losing 400 right. physicians a year from suicide. Now, I'm not going to say it's because of board certification, or sorry, maintenance certification, but it certainly is a stressor that adds things to you. I mean, everyone's got all sorts of things going on in their life, but why are physicians twice the national, the national average for other, you know, the general population? There's clearly something wrong in, in medicine and the way we're taking care of ourselves. And I don't think you are not making this connection and no one here in this it, with the main certification that anyone is opposed to the initial certification process and specialization of physicians. It is only the continuous testing that goes on afterwards. And so that's where you need to get, I guess, involved, talk to your congressman, maybe changing the safe harbor law uh, right. in the, for the GPOs and then, and then to try and... And then to go at the state level, there are a number of state laws, but this should not be a physician issue. This is a, this is a, every citizen should be concerned about this, that their right to see f physicians and to be taken care of by their doctor is being taken, taken away from, you know, the, for ridiculous reasons and, and things that are not in any way promote their health. And so it's a, it's a national tragedy. Yeah. 
Yeah. It, well, and, you know, no one likes uh, to feel like they're being used and abused. So, you know, we're, we're trying to f- finally push back and work collaboratively with other doctors of all subspecialties. Uh, our mission is to rid um, uh, the maintenance of certification and continuous certification for all subspecialties across the United States. Mm-hmm. Um, it has never been shown, as I mentioned, uh, to, to have any uh, evidence base. So uh, it is uh, nothing more than a money-making scheme for these organizations, and uh, it needs to end. Right. And I think everyone out there, this is a call to action, and, and I'm not going to tell you exactly what to do, but I think you should go look at this, look at this organization. Uh, the, I'm sorry, with the name again, Practicing, pra- practicing Physicians, practicing of, America. physicians of America. The link for that and for Dr. West uh, Fisher's blog will be uh, on the show notes page, theparadox.com slash 009. I've almost made it to double digits. I'm, I'm pretty excited about that. Uh, yeah. and, um, and I think you just need to go to find out your state legislature. There are a number of um, state legislatures that are passing laws on maintenance certification. This is something that absolutely should be important to to non-physicians. In fact, you're the ones affected by as much, if not more so, than the actual physicians in some ways. And so you need to make sure that these laws, talk to your state legislator, that's where you have the greatest impact than trying to affect things in Washington. It's obviously much easier on a local level if you can try and get that through. And a number of states have passed these things. Stateofmoc.com is a great website that shows the progress of these various bills throughout the country to try and take back medicine for our patients and for our physicians. Dr. Fisher, I'd like to thank you so much for being here. It was a real honor. It's so great to talk to you. Ah, my pleasure. And, uh, yeah. Well, I mean, I guess my blood pressure is a little bit higher now. Um, no, <laughs> that's sorry. okay. I, I was thinking about you as you're talking about going through all these forms, and I thought, well, you mentioned it when you're post uh, knee surgery, so you at least had Norco to kind of calm you down. <laughs> that probably was somewhat helpful. But uh, yeah. anyway, it, again, it was a pleasure. Thanks so much. And I'll have all this stuff on the show notes page. And uh, hopefully we'll get some, it sounds like we're making progress. And so maybe finally, once now that we've exposed some sunlight, things will get better. Yeah, I think the, the rats are running right now. So thank you again for the opportunity to speak Thanks today. So I yep. appreciate it. Bye. You bet. Thanks for listening to The Paradox. If you like what the doc is doing, please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or Stitcher. And share the show with your friends. Become a supporting listener to get access to special bonuses at patreon.com forward slash theparadox. Show notes can be found at theparadox.com. <laughs>